You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The energy transition is definitely underway. There are big questions as to how fast it can proceed. Transition will make winners and losers, and we shouldn't be shy about acknowledging that. For August 18th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition proceeds and grids have to accommodate more and more generators, like wind and solar, that pass their power through an inverter to change it from DC to AC before injecting it into the grid, we'll have to address some technical issues with the way power moves across it. In the technical jargon, we'll either have to find ways to maintain inertia, or we'll have to find ways to switch to grids that do not need inertia. Now that may sound like a heretical concept to seasoned grid power experts, but as it turns out, inertia is not in fact required to keep power flowing. We only have inertia on the system because we get power from synchronous generators. It's not a quality of power systems in general. There are no theoretical limitations that say we can't operate a power system with zero inertia. The existing synchronous generator fleet has led us to learn to operate systems presupposing inertia, but there are alternatives. One of those alternatives is called grid-forming inverters, which are a relatively new kind of technology, but one that very likely will become a prominent player on the grid of the future. Our guest in this episode, Wallace Kenyon, has been researching these questions for most of the past five years at the University of Colorado in Boulder and at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. And today it is our privilege to have him summarize his research on the show. He'll also explain what kinds of additional research are still needed to transform the grid to one that is friendly to inverter-based resources, or IBRs, and he'll explain some of the pathways by which we can accomplish that transformation. Although we'll be discussing cutting-edge research today, these are not theoretical matters. Many energy systems found on islands, such as the Hawaiian Islands, are using these technologies today, and their experience can offer valuable insights for how continental grids might operate in a highly renewable future. And if none of the things that I just said mean anything to you, (laughs) don't fret. This is a very esoteric and technical topic. In fact, I've given it a geek rating of 11 on our 1 to 10 scale. But that doesn't mean that you have to be a power engineer to get some value out of this conversation. You just need to study up a bit before you tackle this one. You can start with episodes 119 and 126, which are part of our Energy Basics mini-series. They will get you familiar with some of the fundamental concepts and terms. Then you could listen to episode 94, where we discussed how the grid will need to evolve as more distributed energy resources participate on it. Then you could take a deep dive into how we manage voltage and frequency on the grid in episode 55. Then try coming back to this one. And if you're a seasoned power engineer, I think you'll find this a most stimulating conversation. Then, in the new segment of this episode, we'll observe a potentially earth-shaking federal lawsuit in Australia. We'll have a look at a couple of thermal energy storage technologies being applied to retired coal plants. We'll salute the decision by the largest utility in the U.S. to demolish its last coal plant and keep building solar and storage. And I'll share some of my recent media appearances talking about EV charging infrastructure. And now, our conversation with Wallace Kenyon, recorded June 13, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Wallace, to the Energy Transition Show. Hello, Chris. How are you today? 
Good. It's kind of exciting, not only to have my old friend Wallace on the show finally, but also to be doing this in person. This is the first in-person interview that I've done since the before times, and we're unmasked in a room together, which is quite an achievement, I think, for, for the U.S. and a milestone for all of us. Indeed, it is very exciting to be here at ETS headquarters in the recording studio. <laughs> ETS World Headquarters, exactly. That's right. All right, so today we're going to discuss some of the research that you've been doing at NREL and CU Boulder over the past four years, in which you've been exploring how we will maintain grid power quality as the transition proceeds and as we get more and more variable renewables on the system. This is going to be quite a technical conversation because what we mean by maintaining power quality is keeping power within its narrowly defined limits for frequency and voltage, and how we maintain what is sometimes called system strength. Those of our listeners who may not be conversant with those terms may want to pause here and listen to episode 126 first. That's part of our Energy Basics mini-series in which we explained how conventional thermal generators work and how grid operators manage system resources to maintain power quality. But just to get us started today, maybe you could quickly recap how the traditional grid maintains these characteristics, and then we can move on to the questions around how high penetrations of renewables change the dynamics of maintaining power quality. Sounds good. Here we go. A little recap on how the grid operates. So you and I are in Colorado right now. So we are a part of the Western interconnection, the Western half of the United States. It's this really big power system. There's a big transmission network with all these different voltage levels from 69,000 volts all the way up to 500,000 volts. And this is a three-phase transmission system. And we're all connected. California is connected to Washington. It's connected to us here in Colorado. And this is, of course, an AC system, so alternating current. So we have these really nice sinusoidal voltage waveforms across this entire network. So if we were to go to one of the substations here in Boulder, we would see this nice sinusoid in the voltage profiles. It's pretty exciting stuff. And of course, the purpose of this system is to get the power from these generation assets to the load here, the electricity that's powering the computers, powering the nice things you have in the kitchen, all of that good stuff. And we're trying to understand how we have all these generation units on the system. Like, how do they interact? How do they work to get power to all of these loads? So if we look at traditional system, we're looking at fossil fuel-based resources. So you're looking at burning coal or nuclear fission to create steam. And the reason why you're creating steam is because you want to impart this on something called a prime mover at these generator units. And the whole idea there is that you're trying to rotate the shaft. And then the purpose of rotating the shaft is that at one end of the shaft, you'll have a generator. So, and I wanted to pause there briefly just to highlight that there's a little bit of conflation. Like if you look at an actual electrical generator, we're talking about a rotor and a stator. But then generation is sort of more broadly a class of things on the system that's supplying electrical power to the system. So right now we're talking about a generator as we have this rotating shaft. We call that the rotor. And it turns out some really smart people figured out that if you wrap that rotor with these electrical coils, then you can pass a direct current through there and you create a magnetic field. And then you'll remember that we're putting gas on the prime mover. So that's making this thing spin. And then there's a housing that's wrapped around this rotor. And we have all of these coils that are called stator coils, which is stationary coils. And what we do is we distribute them sort of like in a sinusoidal geometric fashion so that when we rotate that rotor with that magnetic field, 
that ends up changing the magnetic field through these stator coils. And because of the laws of physics, you end up with this really nice sinusoidal voltage waveform coming out of the generator. We take that generator, we connect it to the power system, so it's now on our transmission network. And that's where we're getting this sinusoidal voltage waveform. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on because the prime mover is really heavy and the rotor is really heavy as well. So these things have inertia. And the whole idea is that because it's electromagnetically coupled to the voltage waveform that's coming out, you end up with having this coupling between the voltage waveforms that you have on the power system with this actual rotating mass from the generator. So that's where, you know, when we talk about inertia, that's how it's actually coupled to the network. So we have these generators, they're connected to the power system and it's supplying power. We have all of these loads on the network. So, you know, if we're in some sort of steady state, then the amount of power coming out of the generators is going to be perfectly matching all of the loads that we have on the system. But what if we go into the kitchen and we put a piece of bread in your toaster and turn that on? So we've just increased the load probably by about a kilowatt. You know, it's sort of standard residential toaster levels. Something somewhere has to pick up that load. So how does that work? So if we look at a generator, which has this mass that's coupled to the voltage waveform, it turns out if you increase the load on that generator, what it does is it ends up extracting some of the kinetic energy from that rotating shaft. And then, because of the laws of kinematics, that shaft literally slows down a little bit, the rotation speed. And it's that reduction in speed that the generator then uses with its governor to understand that it has to increase the amount of power being supplied to the prime mover. So by having that mass there, and because of the laws of kinematics, it ends up slowing down when you increase the load with our toaster. And then the governor says, oh, we need to supply more power. So that's how they do that. And so the governor speeds it up again. Exactly. Right. Okay. So we understand now how these generators, which we call synchronous generators, because they're all synchronized across the system, inherently creates frequency and voltage. And we understand how these things really interact at very rapid scales, at seconds to milliseconds. And so when a system is stressed, like when there are faults, or if a major generator has to trip offline for some reason, system operators do have to make up that generation elsewhere or shed load to keep the system within its operating limits. Correct. So these are called contingencies. So if there's a fault on the power system or there's some loss of a large generator, which you could even think of as an increase in load. You know, if it's a contingency, then the idea is that it happens unexpectedly. So all of a sudden, you know, in the Western interconnection, we use the Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station in Arizona because two of those reactor units are the largest generation sources on the WEC is the Western interconnection. So, you know, we'll do a lot of simulations where you say, oh, did we just lose two Palo Verde generating units for something right around 2.5 gigawatts of power. So that's pretty big. You think the demand on the WEC is going to be somewhere in the 150 to 200 gigawatt range. So that'll happen. And because of the inertial characteristics of synchronous generators, it's a de facto increase in load on all the other synchronous generators. So they all start to slow down. And what you have is called primary frequency response. So that's the governors, more or less, of all of these synchronous generators. And they sense the frequency declining and they start to increase power input to the system. And that's all going to happen automatically. You know, these events will happen in tens to 
20s of seconds, so very, very quickly. So it's very much not operator action that recovers the system at that point. Okay, good point. So these perturbations in frequency when they happen are initially met by inertial energy, by an actual generator speeding up to compensate for that sagging frequency, right? Well, the frequency is sagging because the synchronous generator is actually slowing down because we're taking the inertial energy from it. Right, but then it has to speed up to get the frequency back where it belongs. Correct, and that's more like secondary response like afterwards. But initially, what you have is the so-called inertial response of the synchronous generators. It's just that very initial perturbation where the synchronous generators start to slow down, and then that is the signal to the governors, which within a half a second or a second are going to start to respond. Right, okay. So now that we've refreshed how the inertia on an electricity system actually functions and the relationship between that and the synchronous generators. Let's talk about what happened in Texas, because this is a great example of where you have a faulted condition, where you have multiple generators going offline. So as we discussed in our coverage of the Texas freeze in February in episode 145, a bunch of generators on that system, mainly natural gas fire generators, started failing due to freezing just as power demand was increasing because people were trying to stay warm. And at one point, this caused the system frequency to drop quickly below the target 60 hertz. In fact, it dropped within the space of about 10 minutes to 59.4 hertz as these multiple generators failed. ERCOT, the system operator, ordered load shedding, but the frequency kept dropping. And only when they actually got five gigawatts of load shedding, which is a very large (laughs) share of the ERCOT total capacity, only then were they able to arrest the decline But then they had to order another five and a half gigawatts of load off just to get the frequency of the system back into spec. So it was only by cutting the power to millions of people that ERCOT managed to restore the system frequency and avoid a grid outage. Yeah, it's incredible, that amount of loss of generation that happened out on that system. But it's very much an example of sort of playing these power balance games. So you have all the generation, you have all the load. And between them, you have the frequency of the system as sort of like a state of health in a way. Like if generation is serving total load, then the frequency stays roughly the same. But then, you know, if you lose generation, then your frequency starts to go down. And then you have to find a new equilibrium. And if you don't have generators to turn on, then you have to get rid of load. There's no other way to do it. Right, exactly. And that could be system operators doing all sorts of action there to make that work, but then you know, if something is tripping off unexpectedly, then it gets more into sort of the relay action where you're going to have more automatic events that are taking place. Exactly. Okay. So now we understand how the conventional synchronous grid works with these big thermal generators. You know, it's basically a heat engine that's spinning a rotating mass and that's providing your power, your frequency, and your system inertia. But then when we go over to wind and solar generators, It's a different situation because unlike synchronous thermal generators, wind and solar power generate what's sometimes called wild power because its power output can really vary quite a lot as wind speeds increase and decrease or clouds come and go temporarily blocking the sun from reaching solar panels. And the power that those systems generate is DC, unlike the AC power that results from a spinning mass in a conventional electromagnetic generator. So we take that power from the wind and the solar and we put it through what's called an inverter, which turns the raw variable DC power into a nice steady controlled AC power. 
power and matches that to the grid's frequency and voltage so that it can be seamlessly integrated into the grid. However, there are fundamental differences between these inverter-based resources and synchronous generators, which has led to changes in the dynamical response of power systems with high penetrations of those resources. And so that's really where your research comes into play. So why don't we talk about that? Like what happens when you add these inverters into a system that's fundamentally based on synchronous generators? Right, this is where things, as if it wasn't interesting enough with the synchronous generators and inertia <laughs> and all of that, let's start using power electronics, which is a really profound technology that's become quite an amazing thing for integrating renewables to the power system. So we're going to start talking about power electronics, which are, of course, the devices that are embedded in something like an inverter, which allows you to actually convert a direct current into an alternating current. And, of course, the outstanding question is, how do I connect an inverter to the power system and supply power to the power system? And it's good to understand, like, when that process started, there were not very many inverters on the power system at all. Pretty much everything was coming from synchronous machines as far as, like, forming the voltages and frequency. It's good to think about synchronous generators as sort of like grid-forming devices. They are literally forming this waveform. And, you know, if there aren't any inverters on the system, just as when you go into the kitchen and plug your toaster in, you know that it's going to be a 60 cycle per second waveform. It's going to have some voltage, you know, 120 volts RMS or something like that. It's going to be that all day, all night. That's like a safe assumption. And... The point that I'm trying to make there is that initially, when we would design inverters to connect with the power system, the whole idea is that we are assuming that there's a stable frequency and a stable voltage at the point of interconnection. So if we want to put solar panels on top of Chris Nailder's house and have an inverter that interfaces to the power system, we can assume that everything's perfectly stable at that point of interconnection. And the way it works is you have this inverter, and it uses this device called a phase-locked loop. And what it does is at the point of interconnection, so like literally the terminals of the inverter, it's measuring the voltage waveform at that point, and it's locking onto that sinusoid. It understands, you know, exactly where it is. It understands the phase of that waveform. More on phase coming soon. And it uses that phase to do a host of other control for there's current controllers and power controllers inside of there. And the whole objective is to lock on to the existing voltage waveform, and then supply an amount of current to the power system, which is equitable to the amount of power that's being generated by the solar panels. So this class of inverters, we can call them grid-following devices, because they are literally following the power system. And if you look at any rooftop solar on, good to distinguish here that we're talking about large networks. So this is not a microgrid thing. So we're talking about connecting inverters to large power systems. So the WEC, for instance. So we have these grid-following inverters, and pretty much any rooftop solar on the WEC or even all these larger utility-scale solar plants that have come on in the last 10 years or so, and even depending on the type of wind generation that you're using, it's all going to be based on this grid-following inverter technology. So things get a little trickier with wind. There's type 1 through type 5, but the type 4 is... That's like a full power connection with inverters. Type 3 gets into some games with induction generators, but we don't need to go too far into that at all. The main takeaway here is that all of these inverters that are on the power system are sort of presupposing the presence of voltage and frequency. So they are explicitly relying on something else to create this energized power system. 
Okay, so the important concept here, I think, is that these inverters are, as you say, grid following. They're looking at the grid, what is the frequency of the grid, what phase is that sine wave at, and they're matching that exactly in order to inject the power from the wind or the solar system into the system. And so does that make them a source of a current, basically? Ah, yes. In electrical engineering, you could think of these grid-following inverters as current sources on the network. Okay. So if you wanted to stand at a high level and look at the transmission system, we have all of these substations, and at all of these points there are these voltages. And everything we connect to the power system, it's in parallel with itself. Right. You know? So like all of the loads are in parallel with each other. All of the generators are in parallel with each other. And synchronous generators are sort of a de facto voltage source for the network, which is what makes them grid-forming devices. Like right. They are literally sourcing the voltage, which is different from these grid-following devices, which instead of trying to form a voltage, they are just trying to push current into an existing power system. And it works. As we will discuss, you know, things get a little challenging as you go to higher penetrations, but at low penetrations, it's a perfectly acceptable way to do it. Exactly. But what happens when they become the majority of the generation, because that's the big question that we're leading to as the energy transition proceeds. I mean, if we imagine getting to a 100% renewable system, mm -hmm. if we imagine getting all of the existing synchronous generators out of the system. So right. if we imagine a future in which there's no coal plants, there's no natural gas-fired power plants, there's no oil-fired power plants, there might not even be any conventional nuclear power plants. In that world, if you had to run a system using only these inverter-based resources, what happens to your system inertia? So there's a trajectory there. There is from the first inverter that goes on the system to 100% and there are all sorts of challenges that exist within. And we should probably back up and just take a look at what happens as we slowly start to displace sources of power from synchronous generation to these grid-following inverters. And an interesting thing happens when you have all of these synchronous generators synchronized to the power system. They all have some inertia. And if we were to look at the inertia and normalize it to the power rating of the device, we find that they all have relatively, you know, within a range... They call it inertia seconds is really the value. They all live somewhere between the two to eight inertia second. So when you have all of these synchronized synchronous generators on the system, you have sort of a de facto system inertia. And what this means is that the frequency is only going to change at a specific rate based on the magnitude of your load generation imbalance. So what happens with respect to inertia anyways, when you start to put grid following inverters on the system you'll inevitably start to take synchronous generators offline because why would you have it there? You're not going to run it at full power. So you just take it offline. You have enough headroom from other assets. Well, I mean, the whole point of the energy transition is to get those things off the system, right? That's right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. You're taking them off, right? right? So what happens? So because you have these grid-following inverters that are not doing any of this voltage forming, they're not forming the power system, they end up relying on these other synchronous generators that are on the system to keep the frequency going. And you end up with a reduction in system inertia, which just makes the frequency start to change a little bit more rapid. So that's what goes on with respect to inertia. There are other things going on. You know, if we talk about system strength briefly, you can more or less think about that, like what's the stability of my voltage waveform at a certain point in the network. And it tends to be at least loosely related to how far away 
your nearest synchronous generator is and like sort of what the equivalent impedances are on the network. And the whole idea there, if you'll take the perspective of a grid following device, it's like how strong is the voltage waveform at Chris Nelder's house? And if it's not very strong, then you can end up with all of these really interesting sorts of positive feedbacks on the inverters and it can end up being an unstable thing. So that's that's more of a system strength question, which is more like, what's my spatial distribution of synchronous generators on the system? You know, is it going to be unstable if I put this huge inverter on the system way out on this transmission line? It might be. There's a whole host of research questions that have to be answered for like all of these individual, they're called interconnection studies that you would do for all of these different inverters. So that's more of the system strength question. But then, you know, again, with respect to inertia, you just end up with a de facto reduction in inertia, which ends up with frequency changing a little bit faster. So rate of change of frequency is probably, you guys familiar with that term? Rate of change of frequency? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think our listeners are certainly familiar with what frequency is at this point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, We can understand what that means. Okay. So, you know, I'm glad you explained it that way because I've actually never had anybody explain system strength to me. That was helpful. All right. So what about this concept then that we often hear from sort of defenders of the status quo, people who insist that the grid can't operate without big thermal generators, big coal, gas, or nuclear plants, that unless there's a majority or however you want to qualify that of synchronous generation on the system, that inertia would just stop. What about that argument? Well, we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast, featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A small town in a remote part of the coast of Western Australia provided a real-world proof of how to manage a grid using only inverter-based resources in May of this year. Onslow, a town of 848 people, took advantage of a sunny winter day with low load to see if they could run their microgrid using only inverter-based resources. It took more than two years for utility Horizon Power and technology partner PXISE, a subsidiary of California-based utility holding company Semper Energy, to install, test, and configure 
configure the necessary technology for the hydrocarbon off test. Using a combination of automated and data responsive controls on hundreds of inverters to maintain 60 Hz frequency on the system, the utility shut down its natural gas-fired power plants one by one until the entire power supply of the town was met by renewables. At that point, the microgrid's frequency was being set by grid-forming inverters at two utility-controlled 1-megawatt battery installations, which was then matched by 600 kilowatts of utility solar and 260 rooftop solar systems, of which about 30 also had behind-the-meter battery arrays. The system ran successfully using only inverter-based resources for 80 minutes, but the test could have gone longer. More tests are expected in the coming months. Eventually, Horizon Power expects to allow the system to turn off its natural gas generators automatically when conditions are right. Then the utility will consider switching 34 other remote microgrids it operates to similar configurations. Ultimately, it expects to save a great deal of money and sharply reduce carbon emissions across its sparsely populated service territory. Item 2. As we alluded to briefly in the news of episode 150, a lawsuit brought by eight schoolchildren and an octogenarian nun in Australia asked for an injunction blocking Whitehaven Coal's plans to expand its Vickery coal mine project in New South Wales. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.